Testing one, two, testing one, two. We're good.
Good morning. Welcome to Haven Ridge this morning. It is a blessing and a joy to worship the Lord with you this morning. It, it's amazing in the summer the difference that a week makes, isn't it? You know, it's it's. Been a lot of, uh, we're getting ready to get back into our fall season. Uh, last week we were missing a lot of families and things, and this week we're you know we're getting closer to a full house. So, uh, but whether you're visiting with us, whether you're uh, a regular part of the family here at Haven Ridge, uh, welcome. Welcome to, to worship the Lord this morning. So a few announcements as we get started. And I may miss some of these because I got several of them that were new. I'm trying to still get this mic situated. Um, okay. So just a reminder, the Boyer family, the missionaries we support in Ireland, um, who are back here in the States, uh, and, and Ireland is now closed to missionary visas, they're trying to get back into Ireland uh, through an entrepreneurial visa. And uh, the means through which they're trying to do that is by selling coffee. Um, so we've got some of their coffee here uh, if you want to try it. Um, but if you're interested in purchasing some of that, their website is theforestandthesea.com. Um, you can also find them on Facebook as well. Um, so, but if you're interested in purchasing that or even just giving a donation just to help them get back uh, into Ireland and ministering to the families and the communities that they've been a part of uh, over there, uh, go, definitely go to their website. Um, <clears throat> All right. And as we mentioned last week, following the service, we'll have a brief finance uh, meeting. This will just give you an update uh, on where the church is financially. Also, just kind of looking towards the last half of the year uh, and some goals and some things that we're trying to work towards. So at the end of the service, um, we'll take a brief break. Uh, families, if you want to go get your children, everybody will come back up here. Um, and then uh, if you already have plans, you've got commitments, you know, certainly you know, feel free to continue with those. But if you plan to stay, we'll have a brief break. Everybody will come back uh, in. And then we'll carry that meeting out. It's not going to take very long, again, just to kind of give everybody, uh, you know, in the church an update where the church is financially and then looking at some goals and some things we're trying to do uh, towards the fall and first part of next year. Uh, tonight at 630, we'll have our men's gathering, our monthly men's gathering. Uh, the topic for what we're going to be looking at is the idea of justice. Okay, God's justice. What does justice look like in the Bible? This is a very big topic within the culture today and particularly within the evangelical church. And it's very important uh, that we as Christians look at and understand this from a biblical perspective. So we're going to be talking about that this evening. So I encourage all you men, come gather for a good time of encouragement, fellowship this evening at 630 here at the church building. All right, uh, a community event that's happening that we want to uh, make you aware of um, is an abortion abolition meeting that's going to be this Thursday evening at 6.30. It's going to be at the Scruffy Sales and Auction Center. Is that right? Uh, our Matt Brock is going to be one of the speakers uh, there. And help me make sure that I, I capture this correctly. Um, you know, what that's going to do is it's going to be an uh, it's going to be a community informational session about the shifting tide of abortion rights within our state um, and how that connects to House Bill 4046. Um, am, I, am I capturing that? Yeah, and in the SBC, the SBC just got the abolition a couple weeks back. Okay. So what is that? Right. 
Yes, it'll be an information about what is abolition uh, of abortion, that, how does it relate to the pro-life movement, all of these things. Okay, so if you're interested in that, that's going to be 630 uh, at the Scruffy Sales and Auction Center in Greer. If you have questions about our information, ask Matt Brock. Matt will be one of the speakers at that session uh, this Thursday. Okay, also uh, we'll, next week as we get into August, we'll, uh, our missional communities, which those are our small group um, that, that's a, our small group gatherings. Those will resume next uh, ne- next week as we get back into August. We took a summer break for the month of uh, of July, so now we're going to get back into those, uh, which is a great opportunity. Uh, if you're new to Haven Ridge or you're interested in, you know, what does it look like to connect your life in here be, to be a part of, uh, of of this? We use the term local expression of a global body of the Church of Christ. Um, if you're interested in being part of those missional communities, we encourage you just to come and visit. Be a part of one. Check one out. Uh, missional community leaders, where are you? Raise your hands. Nathan, Jake, there's one. Antoine, too. <laughs> uh, okay. Yep, Aaron. All right. If you're interested in being a part of a missional community, see one of these leaders or see me and Alan. Even if you're just like, I want to be more part of Haven Ridge, what does that look like? Doing life on life as brothers and sisters in Christ, um, as new believers or even just not a believer at all, but interested, what does it look like to be a Christian and living amongst one another? Missional communities or small groups, this is where this really happens. Okay, so if you're interested in that, see Alan or I, see one of these missional communities. I'd love to connect you up with one of them. All right. the pool social we've been doing for families and for kids at the Groves, that's going to resume next Wednesday. The Groves are going to be out of town this Wednesday, so that will resume next Wednesday from 11 to, that's not 12, 30, 11 to 2, okay? Uh, so just make a note of that. If you've been a regular attender, not this week, that will be next week. The Renewal Wade Hampton program through Miracle Hill, still looking for volunteers there. We'll continue serving from 11 to 2 p.m. Um, on Tuesdays. And then in September, we're going to make a shift to serve on Thursdays. Is that, that correct, Natalie? Oh, I'm sorry. 1030. Did I say 11 to 2? Okay, I'm getting my, my times mixed up for these events. <laughs> from 1030 to 2. If you're interested in serving, you want to join in uh, with, that, with that ministry. What did I say? I get too many of these, and they just snowball on me. <laughs> see Natalie. This is why I direct people to the, the ones who know. So see Natalie if you want more information or you're interested in serving. Okay. Um, I got just a couple more. <laughs> um, starting next week, we'll be ba- our children will be back in Little Me Academy, which is just right across the way for children's service, uh, for, for children's worship, okay? As you know, um, you know, we've had to, to step away from that just because of COVID, all the restrictions and things, uh, and Mandy has graciously come back to us and said, look, we'd love for you guys to be back in there. We're ready for you, okay? So we'll make that shift next week. Uh, Kelly, Elliot, where's Kelly? Kelly, thank you, yes. Um, Kelly, will, she's got our list of volunteers. She's putting that together. So if you haven't signed up or you're interested in serving um, and, and ministering to our children during the, that children's worship time, uh, see Kelly. Uh, whether you're a veteran or you're new, okay, we're going to put kind of our, our veteran teachers in there to get back in the mix of things for about a month. And then if you're new to Haven Ridge, you haven't served with the children yet, after that first month, then we'll give you the opportunity to sort of shadow with some of those teachers and see how that goes. Okay, so that's going to be how we kind of roll back into our children's program. 
All right. And then as we mentioned last week, too, as the church is growing and we're needing you know, more seat spaces, we're running out of chairs. And so the church is looking at purchasing somewhere between 20 and 30 more chairs for a cost of about 600 to $1,000. All right. Uh, we mentioned this last week. We're looking at pursuing that. But if you have any questions regarding that, see Alan or I or see Joey uh, Dixon as well. All right, I got one more announcement, and I'm going to let Kelly come up. She's very excited about this, about making this announcement. Um, she's going to make an announcement about an uh, upcoming scavenger hunt. Is this on? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, we are doing an upcoming scavenger hunt on August the 7th. We're going to have two different groups. We're going to have group one which will be ages five to nine. And then we also have a group two, which is 10 and up. We did a scavenger hunt back in, I believe it was December with the older groups. So we're trying this again and we're gonna, uh, we had so much fun last time and it was a great time. Um, we're gonna try it this time with the younger groups. Uh, it will start at 3 p.m. for the first group, which is five through nine. Um, they're going to meet here for a debriefing, kind of what we're going to do, where to go, and then they're going to go off and do their scavenger hunt. When they're finished, they're going to meet at the Groves, and at that point, it will be about 5 p.m., and that's when everybody is going to meet for pizza and the pool. Um, when they're finished with the pizza, that's when the second group will go out and do their scavenger hunt and then come back for the pool. Um, I know that's kind of confusing, and if you have any questions, you can come and talk to me or Caroline. Joey? I mean, when you say 10 and up. <laughs> <laughs> For children. <laughs> that's true. I'm getting a little excited here, Kelly. Okay, sorry. Uh, 10 to 15. Grade school, thank you. Physically. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> thank you, Kelly. All right. Well, I know, I know that's a lot of information. Um, we'll try and post uh, most, of, most of these upcoming events and things on the church app. If you haven't got that, you know, go to wherever you download apps, search for Haven Ridge uh, Church, and you'll find the app that's there. Um, so we'll try and post that as well as, well as have slides uh, weekly just giving those details, those information. All right. Did I miss anything, Alan? Nope. Okay. All right. Well, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 95. I'm going to read the full psalm, which is only about 11 verses. This is an invitation to worship God. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms, for the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, in, as at Meribah and as in, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore my anger, truly they shall not enter 
my rest. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you, we're called to worship. Called first to look and see your grandeur and your glory. Displayed in creation. Displayed in the precious good news of the gospel. That's the reason that we're here. That's the reason we have community. That's the reason we can fellowship together. So Father, as we come and we worship joyfully, may we also remember the warning. Father, when we come and we acknowledge you and we submit to Christ, we must listen for your voice. We must follow you. And there is before us the warning of erring. May we take a lesson from the disobedience of Israel in the wilderness who saw the wonder of your works displayed and said, no, I'm going to go my own way. Father, will we set the eternal rest of our souls promised to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. May we set our eyes on Christ. May we be faithful to follow him, even if it is at great cost to ourselves. So, Father, we come and we worship you. May we worship you as you have revealed yourself to be. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Let's stand together, please.
than darkness new every morn our sins they are many his mercy is
children, if you want to come up and join Austin. As Austin comes up to talk to the kids for a minute, I want to say happy birthday to Candy Kaufman back there. Happy birthday, Candy. Uh, we love you, appreciate you, and hope you have a fantastic birthday. 27. Happy birthday. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It's good to see everybody. Everybody excited to get ready to go back to school? Yeah, no, yeah, no. I'm curious. Okay, who's who's going to start kindergarten? Anybody going to start kindergarten? No? Not sure? Anybody starting a new school or anything? You are? Okay. All right, good. Starting a new school? Okay, good, good, good. You're, are you excited about that? Okay, all right. You talk to some of these older kids that have done this before. You'll get some good tips, hopefully. <laughs> All right. Well, we're continuing our book, Big Truths for Young Hearts, okay? Thinking about big picture ideas of who God is, who we are, having been created in God's image. What does it mean that that image was broken through the fall when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden? And then why we need Jesus and why Jesus is important, okay? And we're moving towards the end of this book, okay? And we're into this section. We're talking about the church. What is the church? And the last time we met and we sat, we talked about you know, the, the church belongs to Jesus and the importance of Jesus as the head of the church, okay? And we talk some about that, okay? Well, this week, we're going to talk about something called a covenant, all right? And that we're a people of a new covenant, okay? Let me ask you, okay, well, I ask about going to school. How many of you ever been on a field trip before? Field trip before. Okay, somebody, what, what's a field trip? Tell me, for these younger kids that have never been to school, what's a field trip? Oh, you go ahead. Okay, okay, so a field trip, you go somewhere, all right? Somebody else, help fill in. What else happens? A field trip, what else? Okay, all right, it's educational. What else? Okay, now let me ask you, anybody who's gone on a field trip, how many of you had to bring like a permission slip form or your parents had to sign a piece of paper before you could go on the trip, okay? Right, right, and that piece of paper was an agreement. It was an agreement that the school or the summer camp or whoever you did this with, that this, the, 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 the adults said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go here, we're going to take care of your kids, we're going to feed them, we're going to educate them about nature, about history, about something, and then we're going to bring them back. We're going to be back at this particular time, okay? And the parents signed an agreement to that, and there's usually something in there about, you know, your children resume responsibility and yada, 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 basically, you know, releasing the school from responsibility should something happen, all of these types of things. What it is is it's an agreement between two groups of people, okay, about something that's going to happen in the nature of their relationship, Okay? All right, th this is like a contract or it's an agreement, okay? Well, there's a lot of these agreements in Scripture, and these are called covenants, okay? These are covenants that God makes with his people, okay? So God makes these covenants. Now, there's one particular covenant. Well, before I get to that, let me say that what's... Okay, guys, are you listening? I'm hearing a lot of voices, okay? Are you guys listening? Okay, so... When God makes these covenants, he doesn't sit down with like Moses and Abraham and go, okay, let's, let's work this thing out. You give me your ideas and I'll give you mine. No, because God is sovereign over all creation, because God made everything and because he's God, he says, no, this is how this is going to work. 
so God determines the terms of all of these covenants, and that's very important for us. Okay? Well, there's one covenant in the Old Testament that I want us to, to look at. It's a very important one. All of them are very important. Okay? But there's one in the Old Testament that God makes with his people. Okay? Remember the story of, of Moses and the Israelites? They're enslaved in Egypt, and God frees them, right? Moses goes uh, bef- before Pharaoh. He says, let my people go. All the plagues, everything that happens. Okay? Some of you all remember that story. And he brings them out. He brings them to the wilderness, okay? and God gives the, his people, his law. Okay, this is called the law of Moses or the Mosaic covenant. Part of that is the Ten Commandments. Some of y'all may be familiar with that. Okay, so God says, all right, here's how this is going to work. Here's how, how our relationship is going to work. And the Mosaic law was very much about what, it, what, it, what did God say about how he should be worshiped? Okay, what do you do with sin when you've committed sin against God and against other people? What do you do about that? All right, and what does your relationship look like with one another? Okay, this was it. And God said, look, if, you're gonna, if you follow my law, I'm going to give you blessings, phenomenal, wonderful blessings. But if you disobey my law, okay, there will be punishments. There will be consequences. Okay, this was, this was the terms that God had laid out for his covenant, for this agreement. And all the people stood on the mountain. They said, yes, we'll do this. Well, you know what? They didn't do a good job. The Israelites failed miserably, and they disobeyed. God's covenants. So many times, so many times, and two key points in history, God brings a severe punishment on his people. Okay, one time occurs in, uh, in, well, in two different places where God brings other nations to cast judgment on his people and nearly wipes them out. And God says, I'm doing this because you're not, you're not obeying the terms of our agreement. Okay, and so God does this. Well, later, at, at one of those points, the prophet Jeremiah comes along, and God's bringing his plan of redeeming a people for himself, okay? And he says through Jeremiah, he says, I will soon, I will bring about a new covenant. I'm going to bring about a new covenant. Where instead of having my law written on stones, written on things that are outside, I'm going to take that law, I'm going to write it on the hearts of my people. Okay, this was a big deal. Because then God was going to take his covenant that was outside, that was, you know, on paper or on stones, and people were having a, they couldn't, they couldn't obey it. It would come about and people couldn't obey it. They were sinning. And God said, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do something different. Okay, it wasn't plan B. This was God's plan all along. I'm going to take that law. I'm going to put it in their hearts. And God did that when he brought Jesus on the cross. Okay. So the purpose of the old covenant was to show us our own sin nature. How many of you guys looked in a mirror this morning? Anybody looked in a mirror? Okay, so what did you see in the mirror? You saw yourself, right? Well, this is what the law, this is what the Old Testament covenant is designed to do. It's to be like a mirror and show us our own sin nature. Okay, show us our own own sin nature, but it's not designed to deal with that yes you did you looked in the mirror okay so when we look at the old testament law and we look at the things that god says they're designed to show us ourselves and our own need for grace okay so part of that like old testament law is children obey your fathers and mothers okay and so mommies and daddies are trying to lead their children and give them good solid instructions you know on things to do that are honorable and respect god and we disobey, and we say, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to do my own thing. 
Right? God's command shows us that, that, that we have a sin nature that has to be dealt with. Okay? There are others that we could look at. Right? But that's the, that's the point of that old covenant. Okay? It shows us our need for grace. Right? That we need that to be dealt with. Right? And so the new covenant, when Christ comes on, Christ breaks the power and the penalty of sin. Okay, we've talked about that previously, where, where Christ dies on the cross, right? He pays our penalty, but he also breaks its power. And this is where, this is where that new covenant comes in. Because one of the, pow- the power of sin is that we're enslaved to our sin nature, right? We don't truly love God as he is and as he's revealed himself to be, right? We want to do our own thing. We'd rather have a God who's fashioned more in our image, looks more like us, and will do what we want him to, rather than the God who is and who's created all things and made us in his image, okay? And so when Christ died on the cross and he broke the power of sin, he sends us his spirit. And in his spirit, we begin to love the things that God loves. We see God for who he is, who he truly is, not only in his justice, but in his mercy and his grace, and we grow more that we we grow more to love God and want to follow Him. This is where the new covenant, that outside law that was external, is now written on our hearts. Okay. Now, does that mean that we're all going to be perfect? Okay. Is everybody perfect in this room? Don't name names. No. No. Now we're perfect in Christ. We're clothed in His righteousness. If we believe in Christ and we have tr- and we have faith in Him, then when God looks at us, He sees us clothed in His righteousness. He says, "You may enter into My presence." Because of what Jesus has done for you. Okay, not because we're perfect. And we know Christ and we trust in him. There is a battle that happens between our old self and our new self. Okay, we're not perfect until Jesus returns and makes all things new. But we'll get to that in a few weeks. Okay, so here's the point. Okay, the covenants, the agreements that God gave in the Old Testament. Okay, those were to lay the foundation for the new covenant. And we're, the church is a people of the new covenant. Okay, this new agreement where God has written his law on our hearts. And so part of how we know if we're in that community is that we see that people love the things that God loves and people are following God as he reveals himself to be and they love Jesus and they want to honor him. Okay, does that make, that make sense? Okay, I know those are big, those are big ideas. Okay, some of these things I know are really deep and they're really tough but just to help give you a framework for what it looks like to be a Christian, okay? All right, aren't you glad that we live in an age where we have the new covenant and we're not under the old covenant? Yes, the answer to that is yes. <laughs> okay, well, thank you, guys. I appreciate y'all listening. Let me pray for us, okay? Then you guys can go back and sit down. Three- and four-year-olds, you guys will meet your teachers in the back to go to your class, okay? All right, let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Father, for the, the, the story and scripture that shows you bringing about your plan to save a people for yourself. That a people from every tribe and tongue and nation would glorify you through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, that we, can, that we have the privilege of living in the new covenant. Lord, Lord where it's not an external law that that we have to constantly look at and say we fall short of it. But Lord, that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can 
come into fellowship with you. We can be family with Christ and with other believers who lean on his grace and who are clothed in his righteousness and his perfection. So, Father, we thank you and we give you praise, Lord. May we be a people of the new covenant, Father, who are not perfect, but who point to and reflect the perfection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right, you guys, you guys can go sit down. Thank you. If you guys will stand and sing with us. As though heaven had lost 
But then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand. That's when death was arrested, my life began.
before Alan comes, um, brings a word. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I love that song. That thy free grace alone from the first to the last has bound my, has won my affections and bound my soul fast. We praise you, Father. It's your free grace alone. Through Christ shed on the blood, uh, through Christ shed blood, shed blood on the cross. Not of our works, but solely through your Son. That we can come before you, that we can praise you, that we can that we can have life. It wasn't through the law that life would be given, but through your Spirit. Whose whisper divine seals mercy and grace and pardon that Christ's righteousness would be ours. This is what the nations will sing of when all are gathered around the throne. That's why we share the gospel, because Christ is worthy of worship. It's why we do it locally. It's why we do it globally. So, Father, we'd be faithful to the gospel. May we have a clear eye to see the gospel, to see it, to know it, to follow Jesus, not to be carried away by any wind and wave of doctrine that's popular, but to be anchored in the cross and in Christ. And Father, we pray for our missionaries that we support in Ireland and Bangladesh and China, South Africa and other parts of the world. Father, whatever tensions exist between the true gospel and false gospels that are present in their cultures, whatever, whatever temptations they may face to jetson the gospel for something else or to add to it, would you keep them, sustain them, give them a clear vision for Jesus and what it means to follow him and then give them wisdom and give them the words to speak as they shepherd, as they direct, as they preach, as they proclaim Christ's name, as they disciple, as they have difficult conversations. Father, sustain your faithful missionaries, both here and abroad, till all the ransomed church is gathered at your throne. So, Father, now as we come to this point, we open your word. Would you speak to our hearts, bring conviction, repentance where it's needed? Father, we would rest more and more on the free grace given to us in Jesus, and we would live out of that grace for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Galatians chapter 1, for those of you who are visiting with us, I'm good up here, Jake, so for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we go through books of the Bible, especially if you're visiting with us for the first time, we go through books of the Bible, we go verse by verse, Austin and I are expositors, not that that's the only way to preach, but it's the only way to preach, you know what I'm saying? And so, uh, so that's what we do. We think that it's good to give the church body over a period of time a full scope of what's going on in the letter, what's going on in the book. So that's why we do that. 
So we're in Galatians. Austin did an introduction to the book last week. And so we'll roll through starting in verse 6 today. Going through verses six, going, uh, verses 6 through 10 is what we'll be looking at. As soon as my iPad will give me what I want from it. So there we go. So Galatians chapter 1 starting with verse 6. So Paul writes to them and he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. He said, not that there's another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, let him be anathemized. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So he said this twice. For, I'm now, for, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So here's my objective today. I want to better understand the zero tolerance policy for any other gospel, and why such another gospel comes at a high price to those who follow or those who push that false gospel. So simply put, to better understand the zero policy for any other gospel and why it comes with a price. I've divided these few verses into three sections. The first is this. I want to show you that the gospel, the one true gospel, the gospel Paul is mentioning here is a gospel that's unique to itself. It's unique to itself. This is his point. I mean, you have to understand where Paul is coming from. I mean, we understand the gospel to be the words of life. We understand the gospel to be something that actually transforms people. That's something that is not just letters recorded in a page or something that's just happened long ago that we can kind of think about and romanticize about and have, you know, fun butterflies in our stomach as we reflect on the gospel. The gospel is something that's happening now. The gospel is something that is carrying you and sustaining you now. I mean, if you, if you back up a little bit and look at Paul's overarching uh, uh, theme or his, or his letters, you find this gospel centrality through them all. Consider, consider the church at Corinth. Consider what he's telling them. He's shaping their paradigm of worship, kind of critical to the church, right? It kind of matters how you worship. And so he's helping shape that paradigm. He's helping to shape that worldview. He's talking about the gifts in the church. He's talking about what they're used for, how they're used appropriately. And you find all these cool things about prophecy, and that's a fun debate on what that actually means. But it says it, right? So we're not, we don't have a problem with the word. We want to know what it means, right? I think we do. And so he talks about these things. He talks about tongues. That's another fun conversation. We should not have a problem with the word because it's there just what it means, okay? So let's just assume that we all have the right meaning of that. But what's important is he finishes this explanation in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, now remember the gospel that I brought to you. He says, remember that which I gave you, which was of first importance. He said, that which you, in which you stand and by which or through which you are being saved. So he kind of concludes this, let me shape your worship so that it's acceptable, so that it's pleasing, he concludes that with the gospel has to be central to all that you do. We can gather here and we can sing these great songs. We can sing songs that have a great rhythm, have a great melody, have a great groove. We can do all that stuff, but if the gospel's not central to our worship, then we waste our time. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we waste our time. If I'm preaching to you, 
you know, and I get it, I get it. Not everywhere you look in the Bible, you know, do you know, does it just scream gospel? But as you back up and you follow the continuity of the Bible, the nominate the, one of the dominating themes is redemption. And you don't separate redemption from the gospel, right? So there's a reason that Paul feels very strongly in the word the reason he uses words like I'm astonished that you've done these things because the gospel's unique to itself. So what is the gospel? Well, it's like no other. Let me explain what I mean. So the gospel is the good news. And good news is really good news when you have a little perspective. Good news is good news when you realize that, oh, like what, what Paul did for the church in Ephesus. He provided them perspective in what we see as the first two chapters of his letter to the Ephesian church. He starts off by saying, these are all the great things you have in Christ. These are all the great things you have in the gospel. And then right after that, he flips the script on them. And he's like, but guess what? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. And you were sons of disobedience and the wrath of God was on you. All this kind of stuff. And he gets to this point where he says, but, but because of the grace and mercy of Christ, you've been made alive together in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And he goes on. So he shows them this. I think the Holy Spirit inspiring Paul is very intentional to give them that perspective that they need so that they really can see the gospel as good news. I had a pastor come to my house one time, knock on the door and says, I've got good news. Can I share with you the good news? And I thought maybe this is the first time I'll ever have somebody witness to me that's not a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. And he says, the good news is this, that a church loves you. I said, that's the good news? That's, that's fine. I mean, that's good. We hope that Haven Ridge will love people. We hope that us as a body of Christ will love people as we're instructed to do so. But if you want to really love me, is that you give me the words of life. If you really want to care for me and display that kind of love that we have to have for one another, then let that be driven by the gospel. Let that be driven by truth. So I have yet to be witness to in my entire life. And I don't know if the day comes I'm going to play devil's advocate or just kind of bask in the glory of being witness to. I don't know what, how I'm going to respond to that. I may cry. I may praise God for that person. I'm going to encourage them, but I don't know if I'm going to come out of the gate and say, hold on, I appreciate what you're doing, but... You know, let me, let, me tell you what I, let me tell you what I think. You know, I think I'm just going to sit there and let it just wash over me and then say, like a salesman, I'm not, you know, I don't have to buy because I already own it, but I wanted to hear it. You know, I wanted, to, I wanted to hear what you had to say. So it's good news. And helping us, as Paul, as, as Paul helped the Ephesians see that it's when they can look through the lenses of the depravity of man and see that man is broken, man is sinful, man is destitute, man is separate, then the gospel comes into play and it's brilliant and it's bright and it's beautiful because now you're put on a scale and you see how awful you really are in light of how good the gospel really is. So the good news is good news, but it's better news when you understand it through the lens of the gospel or through your own need. So the gospel is not just an event that applies once to the lives of those who believe, but it's the continuous work of Jesus towards completing salvation in your life. And I'm referring again to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5, where Paul says, the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved. I don't know if this, this should not be new to you all. I don't know for our, new, our visitors here. I don't know if that's a new concept to you. We think, uh, what does that mean? I'm being saved. I mean, I was saved then. What, what, what are you talking about? I'm just using biblical language. Paul says you're being saved saved. The gospel keeps you actively, okay? It keeps you because to quote John MacArthur, if you could lose your salvation, you would, period, period. I mean, it doesn't take long to look into the scriptures and see man's 
nature and state as an enemy and in opposition and hostile towards God to realize that's where you would default to because that's where you came from. But there's a keeping power of the gospel. As Jude writes, those who are being kept, there's an active, continuous work that the gospel's doing, not just something that happened then, but something that continuously works and is active in our life. So the gospel is that. The gospel is the reality of a man who died to save men who are dead. You know, and I've said this before, but I will use this illustration forever. The way that we look at our spiritual deadness is not you need a, 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 a flotation donut thrown into the water so that you can reach for it. If there is a corpse in the water, how foolish is it for us to throw a life raft and say, wake up, grab out for that thing. No, they're dead, not going to do that, right? It doesn't work that way. I hope you haven't been in that situation and had to try it. If you do, I promise you it will not work. But if someone's flailing in the water and in the process of drowning, yes, you jump in after them or whatever. But the sense that Paul mentions it when he says you're dead in your trespasses, he means you're dead, spiritually dead. You have no life at all. And the gospel is a message and a reality of a man who came and gave his life. And it's a message to dead men that they may have life. The gospel is also the definitive work and full completion of Christ's earthly objective. I want to say this. The gospel is 100% successful in its aim. If the gospel is a bow and arrow with a marksman, it is hitting bullseye every time. Jesus even said, I have lost none that the Father had given me. The question is, when did the Father give those to Jesus before the foundations of the world. That's what the scripture says. Now, you may not have been (laughs) in Christ, regenerate from before the foundations of the world, but you were, in fact, written before the foundation of the world. So it's the definitive work and the full completion of Christ's earthly objective. He was 100% successful in gathering to himself those the Father had given him before the foundation of the world, or he will be fully successful in that. At the center of the true gospel is the biblical, historical Jesus. If you falter on the person of Christ, then the gospel falters. Because central to the gospel is Jesus himself. Wrong Jesus, wrong gospel. So the gospel is unique to itself. So Paul is astonished. You've so quickly deserted him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul knows this is what the gospel is and you're turning away from it? This is what you have in Jesus and you're turning away from it? He's astonished. He's not mad. He's not mad. The, the, the word here, astonished, is not, it doesn't connote anger. It's surprise. It's disbelief. He really cannot understand why he would, they, would, they would turn away. So why are these gospels so, why is, why is the false gospel so offensive? What I want to do this for you, and I'm going I'm to read this uh, instead of elaborating on each one for time's sake, because um, I know we have a, a brief finance meeting when we're done, so I want to move through this quickly. A few of the gospels that you face, knowingly or unknowingly, that are at large now in the world are, are as follows. The prosperity gospel, we've heard of this. 
this falls under that camp. Now, it was a works-based gospel. It was the gospel of moralism, good works, that Paul's combating in this context. That's what the, that's what the, the new believers are turning towards. And Paul can't believe it. He's, he's astonished at these things. So the gospel of moralism is one of them. We are saved through our own righteousness. We earn these things. We work these things, which makes Christ's atonement insufficient. Prosperity gospel, it marginalizes the righteousness of Christ and makes material possessions the litmus test of your favor with God. That's what it does. A prosperity gospel proponent will come to you and they will say, well, yeah, you're saved by grace through faith, but let me add something to that. The, the evidence of your salvation is whether you're prospering in this life. And they don't mean abundant life as Jesus meant abundant life. I have come to save and provide life and life abundant. That's not what they mean. They think abundance is wealth, health. That's a prosperity gospel. And it's an assault on the atonement of Christ. The self-help gospel, Jesus died to make you the best version of yourself. That you aren't really a sinner, but you just need a little help. It's a gospel filled with good advice, but very little good news. The signs and wonders gospel. You are truly saved if you see miracles and are a part of them through your extreme faith. This happens in branches of Pentecostalism, and it's a false gospel. The gospel of permissive grace. I'm gonna, I straight copied and pasted this one because I didn't want to get it wrong. So uh, this is from a post in Christianity Today. Many people have been rescued out of sterile, joyless, and performance-based Christianity when they learn that we are not only saved by grace, but we are also daily renewed and accepted by grace. This is right. This is good. This is, again, we're getting to the gospel of permissive grace. They have been delivered from a life of rules without relationship and outward compliance without joyful obedience. Grace, once understood, is truly amazing. Not just for great, not, not just for great sinners, but also for struggling saints. But today we are witnessing a perversion of grace in what we call the grace movement. Teachers and preachers who offer people grace in advance, even before they are convinced they need it. Today, many preachers say that God loves you unconditionally. And we hear these things, we're like, that sounds right, sounds good. You know, we, we, we like the God who loves us unconditionally. And God loves you just as you are. Unconditional love is interrupted as unconditional acceptance of one's, uh, of one's lifestyle. And where we have to draw this line of distinction in this false gospel that is prevalent is in this way, yes, we believe that God rescues you out of where you are. But what the gospel does is it transforms you to something new. The gospel of permissive grace is, I'm not looking to change you. I made you that way. Keep on going. As you're going, I accept you because I'm a God of unconditional love. God's salvific love has condition. It has condition. His salvific love is rooted in his salvation. He loves his children with a salvific love. And then there's the American gospel. This is rooted in American exceptionalism and very similar to the prosperity gospel. But the gospel in reality is for all nations, for all people. And then there's the social justice gospel. Lastly, the social justice gospel, that the purpose of the gospel is to feed the poor, help the sick, end systemic racism, and violence and the marginalization of women and minorities. Now, don't get angry with me yet. These things do matter. 
that's true and good, we should be doing all of these things. If these things exist, we should look for biblical justice. But a sandwich, clean water, and eliminating the 30-cent 30, 30 wage gap on women's pay isn't going to save them. We must give them something more, but nothing less. Give them the true gospel. And there's other gospels that I won't go into too much. The gospel of interfaith dialogue. We are all the same. The gospel of inclusivism. We accept all people. The gospel of pluralism, as long as you're sincere. This is the Oprah Winfrey worldview. As long as you're sincere, all roads lead to Rome. That's pluralism. These are false gospels, false hopes. And Paul's dealing with one of them in particular, and that's the gospel of moralism. And so he's astonished. What makes all of these gospels so offensive? Well, they make man the center, and they highlight the potential of man, but they deny the depravity of man. That's what happens with a false gospel. Well, that's why this is so bad. Anything that's an assault on the atonement, anything that minimizes Christ and maximizes man is a false, false gospel. Jesus is the centerpiece of heaven. Jesus is the centerpiece of the entire biblical narrative. He's the one that is made much of. He is the one that is looked forward to. He is the one that is looked back on. Man has no place or reason to step in the place of Jesus and attempt to rob him of his glory. And these false gospels do just that in many ways. Paul is astonished. These Galatians aren't simply working through their theological preferences or convictions. They're not trying to determine if they're going to be Arminian or Calvinist or a fence-sitter. They're not, that's not what they're working through. They're not working through infant baptism or pedo-baptism. They're not pedo or, or credo-baptism. They're not working through those things. They're not working through secondary issues. They're not working on their eschatology. They're not working on that. You understand there's a bigger thing going on here. There's a completely different gospel that's going on for them. So that's why Paul is astonished. As one theologian said, they are, they are not shifting in a theological position, but they are shifting allegiances to another gospel entirely and therefore turning away from the one who called them. So they're not just turning away from a gospel and turning to a completely different one, but they're turning away from the one who called them. They're turning away from God himself. Now we can see why Paul is astonished. Now we can see why Paul, who was very instrumental in the life of this church, as a missionary, he's looking back and he's seeing these things right out of the gate. He's got an, he has an agenda. He's not like, well, let's, let's sit around and have some pleasant conversation before I get into some hard stuff. He's like, look, the gospel's at stake here, so sit down, shut your mouth, <laughs> and listen. They're shifting allegiances to another gospel. This is why Paul's astonished. He's not angry, but he's surprised. I can identify with Paul here in, in some ways. I think Paul has a pastor's heart. He's not mad at them. He's not like, I hate you. Oh, you frustrate me so bad. I think there are moments like that with Paul. But here is not so much the case. He's just surprised. He is grieved. He's like, what, what is going on over there in Galatia? What is the deal, man? What? You know, as, as, as pastors, there are moments in the life of this church with, with maybe people here, people not represented here today, that we have been astonished, that we've asked the same kind of questions. Why would you go this way? There have been people that have left for a false gospel, maybe not recently, but in the life of this church. And, and, and we sit here and we're astonished. What's, why? So I can, I can 
I can identify somewhat with Paul here as I see a pastor's heart coming from him. The Galatians are not, they're, they're turning to a different gospel. And so how do, how do you know that it's really, really different? If it's, if it's the gospel but works are added, is it really, really different? And, and why this matters is because Paul uses language to explain that this is not similar as we might hear it, but completely different. Because there's two words that can be used when it comes to describing something, like here when it's different. There's the word alos and there's the word heteros. Alos meaning the same. It's the same. Here's the way it's understood. Okay, you know I like my coffee. I like my coffee. I'm a purist. I drink nice coffee. Some of you drink Folgers. Some of you adulterate your coffee because you hate yourself. I get that, right? That's a personal issue that you have. You want to come to the dark side, that is dark roast, and pure coffee and enjoy life for a change and not hate yourself? Let's talk, okay? That's my pastoral responsibility to you. If I have a cup of coffee and I'm sitting with my buddy Matt Brock and he goes to the coffee pot and says, can I, can I top you off? Sure. He fills me up, right? That's alos. It's not a different cup. It's the same coffee. Using the same cup, it's the same. There's new fresh coffee going in, but it's used in the sense of saying it's the same right? Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a difference because coffee that wasn't in the cup going in, but it's, there's the sameness because it's the same cup, same cap, type of coffee, all this stuff. But the word used here is heteros, and that's a familiar word to us as a prefix at least, heteros, hetero, heterosexual, meaning different. But it's completely different, all right? I, I know that you will want to scream amen out loud. You're free to do this, but can we not all agree that men and women are completely different, okay? So, so heteros means completely different, and that's the word they're using to describe the gospel that they are turning to. It's not a similar gospel. It's a completely different gospel. Now, what will happen as you're thinking about that, you're like, uh, okay, well, what does that mean? Because there's a lot of similarities. When we talk about the works gospel, the gospel of moralism, you say, well, by grace you're saved through faith. I mean, that's the language I would use, and they, they kind of sprinkle in works. Here's the issue, and this is what Paul argues, because after this text is when he's going to say, if you're doing this, it's damnable. It's worthy of anathemization. It's, this is not excommunication. This is, you are worthy of hell. This is, this is strong language, and it's not mine, so don't get mad at me, okay? This is a big, big deal. It's a big deal. Because there were some coming in to stir them up, verse 7. They were troubling you. They were agitating you. Jake Eakin and I talked about that word agitate a good bit yesterday. And, 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 and this is here in this text again. They're stirring them up. They're agitating them. The same term is used when Jesus said to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be agitated. When Herod was shaken or disturbed or agitated when he heard of the birth of the king of the Jews. So the same thing is happening when they come in. They're troubling you, trying to distort the gospel. It's not just a perversion of the true gospel, as one may suggest. Any alteration, here it is, and why this is of such great offense, and worthy of, a, uh, of anathema, is that any alteration to the true gospel creates a false gospel. And that's not easy for us to swallow. 
Because that means that you have to say, if someone subscribed to everything we do and they just add works, that they can't be right with Christ. I think that's Paul's argument. I think that's Paul's argument. Let's set emotions aside and let's just deal with the text. He says you're turning to a different gospel, not that there is another one, because there's really no other gospel, right? But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And let me get a little ahead of myself, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach you a gospel contrary to the one, meaning anything different than the one true gospel, meaning the addition of works, let them be accursed. Why? Because they are leading you to hell. And the punishment fits the crime. I think this is where Paul comes from. Listen, Jesus is the centerpiece of the gospel. Therefore, any alteration of the gospel, any alteration of the person of Christ then creates a false Christ. Let me throw this out there and let's wrestle with this for just a second. If I added to the biblical historical Jesus, would it in fact create a false Christ? Just think to yourself. If it creates a false gospel, would it then create a false Christ? If I added... Or took away from the biblical historical God, the Trinity, the triune God. Would I then create a false God? If I adopted the God of the modalist, that he's not Trinitarian, that he's not three persons, one God, but he's just exists in different modes. He's a father when he needs to be a father. He's a son when he needs to be a son. He's a spirit when he needs to be a spirit. Can I be right with God if I have the wrong God? I think these are things we have to wrestle with. And I think this is definitely the argument that Paul's making with regards to a false gospel. So it seems like we would have to take seriously what happens if we have misunderstood or misappropriated or wrongly defined or subscribed to Jesus or God or or the Trinity. The gospel of Jesus is incredibly specific with no margin for error. It's incredibly specific. I mean, this is not the first place that Paul says this. If this was the only place that he says it, it's enough because it's there. But he also writes to the church in Corinth and he, he, he describes what the gospel is. He talks about Christ, who Christ is, crucified, risen, reigning. He says, hey, if anybody else preaches something other than that, let them be cursed. I've talked to Jehovah's Witnesses before. They come to my door and I say, hey, tell me what the gospel is. And they roll out their view of the gospel, which has nothing to do with Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. And then I show them a text where Paul says, it is Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. And then I say, and then Paul says, if you have something other than that, let him be accursed. What do you say to that? I don't know. I don't know. Because the gospel of Jesus is incredibly specific with no margin for error. Jesus must be fully God, fully man. Jesus must not be a created being, but exist from eternity past. Jesus must have bodily resurrected. There's a lot of non-negotiables when it comes to the gospel. But the proof that any perversion or alteration of the true gospel creates a new and false gospel. And we see that in the next few texts. Moving forward, these next two points are much shorter than the first one, but I wanted to kind of lay that foundation. So the gospel is unique to itself, but also the gospel is one that comes with a warning. The true gospel is one that comes with a warning. Here's the point. The message is far more important than the messenger. Paul says it twice. If I come to you and I preach something contrary to this, let me be accursed. If an angel comes to you and preaches something contrary to this, let them be accursed. 
I mean, he uses himself as an example, and he uses angels for an example. And the reason for that is to say, this is law. This is law. Not whatever other authority you see. Sure, not your government, not your teacher, not your mom, not your dad. This is law. Not the charismatic preacher that might have substanceless sermons that we like to listen to, and they disagree, so you must disagree. No, no. We, this is our standard. This is what the law is. So we subscribe to that. And we test everything that is said in light of what's in here. Paul's statement here about himself and the angels is to communicate the importance of the true gospel. The gospel, according to the scripture, is what we are anchored to. Sometimes the pseudo-authorities present a gospel with slight alterations, but we don't follow that, no matter how much influence they might have. No matter how much we, like, we might like them, for whatever reason, we go to the text and say, I have to test it. You have to test what I say in light of this. I mean, you know that. For those who would argue that the true gospel and the gospel of works isn't really that different, let me say this. If the true gospel and the gospel that the Galatians were turning to, if it wasn't that different, then why would Paul say that whoever teaches it would be anathemized? If it wasn't that different, then why would he say that? Why would Paul demand the highest of sentences on such a crime? If someone preaches another gospel, let them be accursed. This is far worse than church this is far worse than church discipline, far worse than excommunication. This is a curse. He says you're worthy of hell. I mean, what's the why, why, did, why did Peter, why, why did Jesus call Peter Satan? Remember that when he said, get behind me, Satan? Why did he do that? Because Peter was standing in the way of the cross. Jesus was saying, hey, I've got to go and do this. And Peter said, no, 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 not you, not you. He said, get behind me, Satan, because Peter was standing in the way of the gospel. So Jesus calls him Satan. I mean, he said a lot of lovely things, you know, but this is Peter. He called him Satan. I mean, he, I mean, if, if you're in an insult fight, you call somebody Satan, you win. That's, that's how that works. Not recommending that. So why such a punishment? Well, here's why. The offense of the gospel is this. It falsifies the work of Jesus. And it falsifies the work of Jesus by minimizing the power of Jesus. It denies that Jesus' single atoning work was enough to redeem man. It falsifies the work of Christ by rendering Jesus as impotent or weak in other words, his atonement and resurrection were not quite strong enough to rescue you on its own. Therefore, you have to put in your own work to secure your salvation. Or, another view but similar is the view held by Joyce Meyer and many of her contemporaries. And that is that Jesus suffered the wrath of God on the cross, but then had to go and suffer and be tortured in hell to fully atone because the atonement on the cross didn't quite do it. It was insufficient. This is what she will tell you. And it's heresy. And it's an assault on the sufficiency of Jesus and the atonement. Why is it so offensive? Because it works to keep others on a trajectory of damnation. It doesn't in any way work to get them into reconciliation with God. It works to keep them as enemies of God. If I were to instruct a blind man to walk towards a cliff's edge, would you like me very much? No. 
hey, man, hey, Joey, <laughs> we just walk that way. And then he drifts off the cliff. I mean, I know it's Joey, but most of you would probably be upset because that's wrong. You would say, well, that was a murderous act. You knew what was going to happen. You pointed him that way. How is that different? And not, how is, how is it not worse to have truth or have a distorted gospel that's going to serve to only keep people out of view of what's right? But we want to have grace and love and peace, and we want to say, you know, can't we all just get along? We, we, maybe not we, but this is the understood generalized we, you know, well, th- they can have their view. You know, we're in a postmodern time where relativism, in a sense, rules the day, at least in a secular world. So your truth is your truth. Let the Jehovah's Witness have their truth. Let the humanist have his or her truth. Let the easy believism proponent have their truth. Don't muddy the waters. Don't be combative. Love. Love. When it's the least loving thing you can do to withhold truth. And it's not arrogant to believe that you have truth. They believe they have truth. It's not arrogant to dialogue. It's not arrogant to say, hey, I believe these are the words of life. Let me share them with you. You don't have to be a jerk. (laughs) You don't have to be arrogant in your approach, but it's not arrogant to believe and have conviction. It's offensive because it essentially calls the gospel of Jesus, and follow this, a false gospel. It flips the script. We would say something contrary to the true gospel is a false gospel. Does it not ring true that someone who holds to a false gospel, believing it to be true, would necessarily would necessarily view or it would create by necessity the idea that the true gospel is actually a false gospel. So with such condemning realities, it's no wonder why Paul would say that pushing a false gospel is worthy of a curse or worthy of hell. So with this, a gospel that comes with a warning, but it also is a gospel that positions men against the world. The final point is this. It is a gospel that positions men against the world. Paul is saying here that the business of serving Jesus is not a business that the world will applaud. Listen to what he says. For am I now seeking the approval of man, verse 10, or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. It's not the way to find the affirmation of men. It's not the way to endear yourself to a secular world. Following Jesus is not the way to make friends. Not certain type of friends anyway. We saw this reality play out with the disciples as we studied the book of John. Jesus told them, listen, you follow me, this is what to expect. You remember what what, what, what he told them? Hey, they're going to cast you out of the synagogue... And they're going to seek to kill you. And eventually it's going to happen. That's what you face when you become a servant of Christ. The gospel of Jesus will not endear you to this world. Think about it. It's commonplace to mention God or point to the sky when given an acceptance speech as an award-winning celebrity or a game-changing athlete, and nobody balks at that. Nobody has a problem with that. I just want to thank God for this award. I wrote this country song, and you know. I just want to thank God. People are happy about that. Nobody has a problem with that. 
you know, score a touchdown or like me being a stellar athlete, you know, point to the sky after a home run, which I didn't hit many, but still, contact hitter, those matter. And, and, and uh, sorry, shouldn't have, shouldn't have joked, I got derailed. Um, nobody has a problem with that, right? It's like, yeah, that's good, that's his thing, that's his thing, you know, score a touchdown, you know, raise your hands, whatever, Tebow it, I don't care, whatever you're doing, that's good. But it's another thing when Jesus gets thrown into the language. Watch a celebrity to get up there and say, I just want to thank Jesus because I was dead in my trespasses and sins and I formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and uh, was, 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 a, was a child of wrath even as the rest. Praise God. Because of the riches of his mercy, he made me alive together in Christ Jesus for by grace we've been saved through faith, not of works, so any man should boast. <laughs> you don't hear that, you know. And if you do, there's going to be a problem. The mic will cut off so you wouldn't hear it anyway. It's one thing to talk about the goodness of Jesus, but another when you talk about the corruptness of the human condition. It's hard to perceive the true goodness of the gospel without realizing the serious need for the gospel. The broken world is naturally set against the gospel. The message of the gospel isn't offensive until you point out the sinfulness of man, which, by the way, when you get to the root of the gospel, you have to talk about the sinfulness of man because that's why the gospel is necessary. Ask the guys who show up downtown on Friday night or to the abortion mill on Saturdays why they're hated so much. Just ask them. Is it because they're jerks? No. No, I've been there. I've listened to them. Is it because they're arrogant? No. Because I've listened to them. Because I've talked to them. I hear their message. Is it because they're intolerant as the world views intolerance? No. No. Is it because they're ignorant? Just ignorant men out there just rambling like they have uh, some kind of problem Mentally and verbally, and they're just spouting off the mouth a bunch of nonsense. No. It's because the gospel will not endear you to the world. Not in the world's lost state. That's what these guys do. And this applies to any of you. In the lane that you're in, in the natural rhythms of your life, when you're sharing the gospel, if you find opposition, if you press the issue, you press the envelope, and you say, hey, we're broken we're, 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 we are a fallen people. I'm, I'm not that bad. Yeah, you are. No one's righteous. How dare you? Uh, but, but seriously, you are, you know, you're deserving of hell. What? I'm deserving. What? I, I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't, I don't rape and pillage, man. I'm not a modern-day Viking. I don't do these things. No, no, you don't understand this. You know, one sin separates you. You know, you're born guilty. You said, I'm born that way? Yeah, how dare you? How dare you say that? You don't know me. Yeah, this is what you get into, right, guys? I mean, along with a whole host of other things that people get mad about. Why is that? Is it because they're jerks, arrogant, intolerant, insincere? No, it's because the gospel will not endure, endear you to the world. Sometimes we want the favor of God along with the favor of men. And that is a dangerous place. Unfortunately, we balance on this line sometimes in an effort to be loved by God while simultaneously being loved by the world. We want both, but you can't have both. The gospel is an offense to those who are darkened in their understanding. I'm not saying everybody you talk to will hate you. I'm just expressing what Jesus expressed. 
I'm just expressing the realities of those desiring to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That they will hate you, they will cast you out, they will say all kinds of things against you because of me, Jesus said. I'm just kind of bringing these realities to the table. So in light of this text, we are challenged with a decision, I believe. And I think this decision is daily, and it's this. Whom will you serve? And when I got to the end of this, thinking about this, we'll bring this to a close. I couldn't help but think of the context of Joshua. You know, Joshua followed in Moses' footsteps after Moses led the children of Israel, and then Joshua took over and led them. And there was a moment towards the end of the book of Joshua where, where Joshua stepped in and he, he took Israel and he said, I want to I recount all these great things that God had done for you. Now Israel, we also knew, had some problems. We see their harlotry played out through the entire Old Testament. And he sits them down and he says some things and he says, look, these are all the things that God had done for you. Delivered you, he's, he's made provisions for you, he's bringing you to the promised land. And then he says these words, now therefore... Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord, the one true God. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. I think that should be the sentiment of the believer. We'll, we'll subscribe to the one true gospel. Central to the one true gospel is the one true God, Jesus Christ. I think this decision is not one we make once and things are smooth sailing, but rather it's a decision that we make daily. If you make the wrong decision today, repent and make it right tomorrow. So what does choosing the true gospel look like on a continual basis? looks like being less concerned with the favor of Christ and more concerned with the glory of Christ. looks like finding contentment in being given a life and identity that cannot be taken rather than being desirous of a life and identity that you do not have. looks like reminding yourself every day that the only line of distinction between you and the rest of the world is grace. looks like a renewed awareness towards others' need for the gospel and an increased intentionality in our efforts to see the world one with the gospel. It looks like weighing all things in perspective to find that Jesus every time is better. And finally, the more we choose to believe the gospel, the more we realize there is no other gospel. And that's Paul's point. And it will be his point next week, and the week after that, and all through Galatians. It won't be the same sermon, but you will get more and more gospel. I'm going to pray, but before I pray, I want to say we are going to have a brief financial update. For those of you who are visiting with us, you are free to stay for that. Or, uh, as I pray, if you want to make your way out, that is fine as well. You are welcome to stay. It will not be long. Um, you will see how broke we are, and that is perfectly fine. Um, but, but you are welcome to stay. Uh, but let me pray. And, uh, and we'll, we'll enter into that time. Father, I thank you again for the gospel. And Lord, I know there were several things in here that, that, uh, that, that I've wrestled through. 
Lord, I, 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 I do wrestle with the notion of, Lord, I, I believe that any alteration to the false go- any alteration to the gospel creates a false gospel. I think that's very clearly argued. But Lord, it seems, it seems that logically and necessarily that creating additions to an eternal, unchangeable God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, would also mean you have a false God. And Lord, I pray that you would help us sift through some of these difficult things and, 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 and wrestle with them and, and see what that means for our life. Or because it's hard to, to think past certain barriers that I have in my own brain. So Lord, help us to sift through those and make sense of those. And Father, I pray that our understanding of, 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 of the centrality of the gospel would, would become stronger and stronger and stronger. And it would take deeper root in our lives in that we would we would live more in the identity of the gospel or with a greater awareness of the beauty that the gospel has provided for us, Lord, and that we would be so intentional with showing others these things, Lord, and that the, the warnings and that the serious nature of a false gospel would weigh very heavily on us until we die, Lord, to keep us at bay and to keep us from changing lanes or deserting the true gospel and therefore deserting you. Lord, I do thank you, and I pray that uh, we, can, we can hold fast for a few more minutes, talk about some other things that matter in a different way, and then spend our day glorifying you. In Jesus' name, amen.